Welcome to the Better Birth Podcast. My name's Erin and I'm a hypnobirthing and antenatal instructor, birth activist and all-round birth geek. In this podcast, I chat to experts in the field of pregnancy and birth, debunking myths around birth, diving into the research around maternity care and exploring what is it that means you're more likely to have a positive birthing experience. If you enjoy this podcast, do feel free to buy me a coffee and fund my caffeine habit. Link to my buy me a coffee page is in the podcast info. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Better Birth podcast. Um, today I am talking to Sophie Messager. Welcome, Sophie. Hi, Erin. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, I'm so excited to speaking to you. We're going to be talking about um, Rebozo today, aren't we? Amongst other things, probably. Mm. Um, so um, before we kick off and, and talk about our topic today, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? Yes, yes. So I'm Sophie Messager. I'm French. Um, I've lived in the UK for 24 years now. I was a research scientist in uh, biology. I've got a PhD in physiology of reproduction for 20 years before the birth of my first child, who's 16 now, and led me to have a complete change of heart. I went from being really scared of birth, thinking, you know, it's like going to the dentist, why wouldn't you have painkillers, and thinking birth was just painful and horrible, to having both antenatal education and a doula, and that led me to have a really, really positive birth experience. And that meant that I just wanted to help others have the same. So I spent four years retraining while still working as a scientist. I had another child in the middle of that, and then ended wow. up doing training as an antenatal teacher, baby wearing instructor, um, doula and healer. Spent many years teaching antenatal classes, and it just grew from there. In, or very organically, I soon found myself teaching professionals rather than parents so eventually I had to give up teaching parents apart from one-to-one as a doula because it was just not enough hours in the day and um, the the thing that's most relevant to what we're going to talk about today is what led me down the path of learning about rebozo was two things with the frustration of attending a lot of births where um, the typical you know babies back to back the labor has a little lull around six centimeters people in the maternity field go we must put an epidural to stop you from pushing and then usually the birth ends up with some major obstetric intervention and I thought there ought to be a better way and I learned started training in reposo techniques back in 2013 because of that that was my first year as a doula I had a lot of labors like that so I was like got to do something and then the same year I also learned a postnatal closing ritual postnatal reposo ritual you know closing the bones and both of those things, you know, I found myself being so enthused about using them in, in both births and the postpartum. That, again, I kind of fell into it. People asked me to teach them. And at first I was like, no, I don't know enough. I can't teach you that. And then got finally to a point, I did a lot of training with a lot of people because I, the science part of me that sort of wanted to know. I have a ridiculous thirst for knowledge, you know, I... I um, I don't understand what it's like not to want to know. And I, I'm a, I'm a really not, not. I'm, I'm a terrible student when I go to courses because I'm like, oh, what about this? What about that? I thought about it. I'm like, you know, always. I'm like, oh, I have so many questions. And I've been at courses where friends of mine would tap me on the shoulder to t- tell me to oh, stop asking questions because I was. <laughs> So I just learned with so many different people and then went to dig into the science. And basically, because there's no science behind rebozo techniques, apart from you know, traditional wisdom, I wanted to know what they did to the body. So I did, as far as I know, I'm the only person who's done that. Um, I went and basically worked, for, I worked very closely with a, an osteopath in Cambridge called Teddy Brooks. And back in 2015, I started doing the technique on him so he could tell me what they were doing. And mm-hmm. that led to a lot of like practice and eventually led to us developing a, a massage table version of the closing the bone together, which we teach together. And, you know, just went from there and ended up teaching a lot of people and teaching a lot of people face to face. And then 2020 happened and I ended up 
eventually developing what I released earlier this year, which is, a, well, I developed a Rayboso online course in 2018. It's gone through two iterations of being updated with new videos, new techniques, and new like science background behind it. And then the closing the bone is something I also released as an online course earlier this year. And it's been a really interesting journey of, of both doing it on a lot of people and getting their experience and feedback. Mm -hmm. um, both during birth and the postpartum and then now now I'm teaching uh, I taught a lot of people face to face but now I'm teaching these things online it's really interesting to get the same kind of feedback because mm -hmm. I get people in my course to um, practice some volunteers and in the repose um, closing the bone online course I get people to send me videos and case studies so it's really interesting to see the same kind they report the same experience yeah. as um as I do. And the other thing that I found really interesting, I keep calling it Rebozo because that's what I use. I, I import Rebozos from, from Mexico and Guatemala. They're handwoven shawls, they're beautiful, and they take two or three days to weave. But I also found, because again, of my curiosity and asking everyone, after I, after I learned those things, I started asking everyone, what did you have in your culture? You know, what did you have? And I found that there's similar practices all around the world. It's not just a South American practice. And especially I remember having a heated debate with a Mexican person a few years ago where she said, um, oh, you know, uh, the, I give it to you, the baby wearing is universal, but the use of rebozo in pregnancy and birth is a uniquely Mexican affair. And then the same year, I both made um, a midwife from, um, Somalia and I had a Somalian client and both of them, the midwife said, we have a show called the Garbasa, which we use in exactly the same way. And then my Somalian client, her mom showed me after a bus how to wrap the pelvis. Like mm -hmm. I said to her mom, show me, her mom didn't speak English, so it was an interesting thing, you know, she showed me how they wrapped and, yeah. and I started to realize, you know, well, everywhere around the world, people have shows, so everywhere around the world, you know, um, that's part of the culture to use fabric to support to you know, to use this as a piece of cloth but also naturally to support the pregnant belly and to support mm -hmm. during the birth the other really funny story is teaching closing the bone to um, a birth worker from morocco who then went back to morocco and started offering this and then people would say have had that in a hammam the hammam is like the traditional turkish bath in morocco so she came back with this new thing and the really the people were saying, I've had that before, like <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> and, and the really, really interesting thing about that is talking to um, various birth workers um, and different, like I'm now training online with some traditional Mexican midwife called Nao Olivia Navarre, was absolutely amazing. And there is a belief that um, we don't know because, you know, it's mostly word, word of mouth, but that the, the ribos of may have actually come from North Africa through Spain and then to Mexico. Yeah. You know, and so I think everything is always very, you know, yeah. 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 It's fascinating, mm. isn't it? All the practices, when you start looking at all of the different <clears throat> practices and the different cultures, there's a lot of similarities, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah because cultures. the needs of mothers, you know, the needs of, the, the, the regardless of which culture you come from you know pregnancy and birth and the postpartum they, they need the same care and nurture yeah. yeah we've just forgotten a lot of it unfortunately mm. yeah. it's a shame um so you mentioned using rebozo in pregnancy yeah because i think a lot of people if they have ever heard of rebozo They've heard it about birth. Birth. So, That's right. so how, how can you use it? What's the benefits of, of using rebozo in pregnancy and how can you use it? All the rebozo techniques, whether they're using pregnancy, birth, and postpartum, they are about relaxation and comfort. And um, they fall into two categories, rocking and wrapping. Mm -hmm. And so there's there's two major reasons I teach uh, people. I started using those techniques in my internal classes. Um, back then, when I was teaching NCT classes between 2010 and 2016, 
I didn't have access to a large um, import of repos that as I do now, you know, I, I now have an online shop because again, so many people starting asking me if I could get them repos or just kind of happened. Mm. But I used to teach um, a handful of uh, techniques to couples using pashminas because I didn't want people to think they had to have a special scarf. Now, first nerd like us, they want the real thing. Do you yeah. see what I mean? But um, not everybody's that bothered about having buying a special scarf from Mexico. I, I started gifting them to all my clients as a doula as well, because I knew they were more likely to use it. But in pregnancy, there's two real advantages that can really help with relaxation and comfort. So, you know, you can rock the pelvis, for instance, and that can really alleviate aches and pains, but also it's very soothing, very relaxing. You can wrap the pelvis, which help with um, discomfort, like pelvic girdle pain, although that, that needs to be treated by um, an osteopath or a chiropractor because the wrapping will not fix what's going on that's causing the pain, but it can alleviate the symptoms. Mm -hmm. So I've had, um, when I started, because again, as I discovered this thing, I started writing a lot about it in my blogs because I was like, hey, did you know you could do that? It's very simple and it can really help. And it really made my day when I had a, a mother who bought a rebozo from me and I just sent her a little video. I ended up doing a lot of little video tutorials on YouTube for friends and family and clients. And she said to me, oh my God, it's the first time I can walk around without crying in pain. Oh. So, you know, it, it makes a big, big difference. So yeah. in pregnancy, you can use, wrap, wrap the pelvis, wrap the lower part of the pump for support. Again, you know, when I started to have conversation with people about well you know what tell me about your experience of that it's just been super fun so somebody pregnant with twins that the only way I can cook dinner for my toddler at the end of the day is if I wrap my bump because otherwise mm -hmm. I'm in so much discomfort you mm -hmm. know towards of the end of the pregnancy and so all these kind of stories started accumulating in my head and, and I have also you know, a beautiful example of the relaxation it provides just simply rocking the bump um is that I had a, a doula client who was overdue. I'm doing quotation marks with my fingers and was just very, very stressed, you know, in the way that you are when you're waiting for labor to start in a very impatient, a bit like when you go to bed knowing you have to get up at 4 a.m. and you lie in bed going, I must go to sleep, I must go to sleep. She was in that very tense, very frustrated state and that really doesn't help labor to start. And there was this deadline looming of knowing that four days from now she will no longer be allowed to go in a birth center you know and the stress of that and like made her come to my house I remember it was a really busy day but I could fit an hour and just spend 10 minutes walking her pelvis where she stood you know, I often suggest that you wrap the, the ribbons around the pelvis and then you get the mother to lean the upper back against the wall because when you're mm -hmm. very heavily pregnant if you try to free rock the pelvis um even though it's a very gentle rocket, it can be very in, like feel very unstable. Mm -hmm. So if you if you lean the upper body against the wall, then you can let the person encourage them to really let their weight go into the fabric, and then they can really relax. And I could see like pink coming into her cheeks, and by the end of the session, she was so much more relaxed. Because as we rocked, she also talked about her, her fears and her hopes and her frustrations mm -hmm. and. I could see it was doing its job very well. And then the other beautiful part of this is like, I always teach the partner to do those techniques because then if they need them during labor, A, they're already familiar with them and the comfort it provides because you can also use those, the same rocking techniques during labor. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then also, you know, it makes the partner feel like they're really good at supporting labor. So, uh, I'm getting more into the labor bits and the pregnancy, but you know, I, I have been in in situation in labor where I could see the partner was getting very um, worried. Mm. And as soon as I gave him the, I said, "Oh, would you like to try?" You know, giving the rebozo, giving a job to do. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, where where it feels like he's doing something that's helpful. Mm. Um, then the, the the guy relaxed, and then you could see the lovely relaxation effect on the on the mother yeah and that that that's why i like teaching it to couples in in pregnancy um rather than doing it myself mm. yeah you you mentioned earlier on about um 
the fact that you had so many clients with back-to-back babies and that's yeah. what I'm interested in Roboso. So how can Roboso help with, with so that? There's that? two things. So to be, <laughs> to be fair, I use Roboso with a combination of spinning baby and biomechanics technique. So I trained both with spinning babies twice and also with Molly O'Brien who does mm-hmm. biomechanics for birth. And I noticed that, A, you know, for instance, uh, the cardinal technique is, uh, you know, when the mother is on her hands and knees and you wrap the ripples gently around the bump like a hammock and then you gently lift and you rock out. Just bearing in mind this kind of rocking is very gentle. You're not going jiggle, jiggle, jiggle really hard. It's just a gently rock from side to side. Well, the two things that happen when you do that is that um, the... The, it it um, rebalances the soft tissue around the uterus. So, you know, if the if there's any kind of imbalance, say we all live slightly unbalanced lifestyle. You know, even driving a car makes one leg longer than the other. Do you see what I mean? And we all cross the one leg, on, and if we have already a child, we carry the toddler on one leg, but not yeah. the other. Yeah. All these kind of activities we have in our daily lives. So lifting the, the bump allow the ligaments around the pelvis to like kind of go blur, you know, like relax and then gives them a chance to rebalance themselves. But also because you're gently jiggling the baby, it's a simple gravity thing. You know, the heaviest part of the baby after the head is the back. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a mother on her hands and knees and you gently jiggle the bump, then the baby's more likely to rotate in that way so often when I was supporting a couple and they had been told their baby was in a less than optimal position, sometimes just one session of that would have rectified before the birth, do you see what I mean, in pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So I always told people those balancing activities to do in pregnancy. And then during the labor itself, the kind of experience I've had doing that technique is that that combined with the one called shaking the apples, where you wrap the ribbles around the buttocks and, and it's a slightly more vigorous jiggle, still mm-hmm. gentle, but it's a bit more vigorous. The idea is if you vibrate and just all large muscle groups, it's impossible for them to stay tense. Mm-hmm. So those two techniques together, they give the body a chance to rebalance itself, but also the added bonus is um, if um, labor sensation feel a little bit challenging to manage, I have had it done to myself when I get birth. Um, it, it, when you're being jiggled, it's impossible to stay tense. So it's half of the story of managing sensations that yeah. kind of being wobbled by somebody else. It's often, I can often add laughter as well, but I've been at lots of births where I've come in, seen that the pattern of contraction is indicative of a back-to-back baby. So usually with a back-to-back baby, you will have a one long, one short contraction. And you will also usually have back pain. Mm-hmm. So those two things together. I mean, when I did the training with Molly O'Brien, she said, usually when there's pain, when there's sensation outside of the uterus itself, it's, it's usually a sign that there's a position that's less than optimal position of the baby. And so I've been, remember, I've, um, second time birth, so the feedback, the mother's first birth had been that typical you know, I didn't know her, but she'd recruited me for a second birth as a doula, typical stuck at six. You know, it's like such a typical story that when people start to tell me, I said, and then this happened and they said, yeah. yes, you know. Yeah. And so I, I turned up in her labor. She was in a birth center. She was on her hands and knees buried in her husband's lap. And I could see the contraction pattern. And she was saying, on my back, my back. And I was thinking, she must not hear for one second that the baby's in that position again because that was her nemesis you know she was really scared this was going to happen again so i said can i try some reposal to help with your back pain Mm. and i did three contraction worth of checking the apples and three contraction worth of um the lifting sifting the bump you know the the and then the contraction pattern was even she no longer had back pain that's all it took yeah. And I've had stories and after stories after stories of this. It doesn't always work. I think I always need to give that caveat because sometimes I've done all this and still the baby's in a slightly <laughs> less than optimal position and still, you know, the, the birth needs to happen through some obstetric intervention. But so many, like, um, 
the, the, the so many kind of miracle stories, like the most extreme stories, which is on my blog to read because the client gave me permission. Mm-hmm. It was a home birth, hedge packs of vaginal births at home after cesarean. She, she labor lasted four days, the longest birth I've ever supported. And on the fourth day, she got that typical stochastic centimeters thing uh, with a baby who's uh, symptomatic, so come, the head coming at an angle. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, okay, we're going to do an inversion and sifting on the buttocks, like shaking in the apple for so sweet contraction. And the mother said she felt the baby turn during that process. It wasn't easy to help her, you know, when somebody's in really good, strong, established labor, mm-hmm. it's not the most comfortable. Those are stuff I keep for like a last resort kind yeah. of stuff. I'm not going to propose that as a first instance of helping. You know, the, the, there's also an underlying belief between Rebozo techniques that first do nothing you know when I teach I say to people the first thing I want you to do when you come out of this course is don't do it don't get don't get your rebozo out and like tickle everyone yeah. um but she we did this she she came back up from that inversion and said uh, I felt the baby turn my back doesn't hurt anymore and then she had the baby in the pool at home two hours later wow. and the next day the there were two of us doulas and the other doulas went to a study day at the local hospital the next day and she said she lost count of how many midwives came and said, but what did you do? Because they were in the kitchen when we did this and they didn't see us do it. And I think in their mind, they'd already thought this woman is transferring and we're going to end up with another cesarean. And it was so fast. But that's what I've seen time and time again, when it's what is needed, those kind of gentle rocking thing, just to like loosen things up a bit. It can be unbelievable. So another, you know, typical story, first time labor, um, again, stuck at six centimeters, the midwife insisting the mother gets an epidural, because again, there's this idea that you must stop pushing even though there's no evidence that it's harmful. Yeah. Um, mother refused uh, the epidural, but midwife keep going on about needing to stop pushing. We try various position, like hands and knees and, you know, like um, open knee chest, which is with the head lower than the the buttocks to try and stop the pushing. The pushing doesn't stop. The midwife offers a very um, strongly epithidine and because the mother had been in labor for 24 hours, but then it's, it's very tempting. So she agrees to epithidine. And by, I said to her, okay, when you have the epithidine, you're just gonna conquer it. So are you happy to try a bit more rebozo stuff before we you get it? And then we do just, I think three, contraction of ribbles on the buttocks and a bit of uh, open the chest with again some ribbles on the bump on the buttocks I can't remember now and thankfully I mean I thought something had changed because I could smell poo yeah. and the midwife said oh, my man my manager my supervisor said I have to examine you again before giving you the pithidine thankfully she did because she was fully dilated so she went from six to centimeters to fully dilated in 45 minutes so she never got the pithidine she, she pushed the baby out yeah. And um, the same mother I got to support again to the second birth last year. And she was very, um, she wrote a, like a very strongly worded legal letter to grant my my presence despite the restriction to only one birth partner because she was, in fact, she did say to the people, if you're not letting my doula in, I'm not coming because she was so worried this would happen again and I wouldn't be there. Even though in, since 2020, I've been teaching birth partners a lot more techniques um, because I've ended up like being at the end on the phone when yeah. somebody calls me and say, this is happening. And I said, try that. And actually it works just the same. So I've had a dad calling me saying she's nine and a half centimeters. And she, they say, if she hasn't got to fully dilated in an hour, they'd take her to theater. And I said, try this, that, and that. And they did. And the baby was born 20 minutes later. Yeah. So it still works, but I yeah. had to spend a lot more time and sometimes teaching online, like on Zoom. Um, because, you know, there was circumstances over the last two years where I couldn't be with people at all. Mm. But um, so, I, yeah, I spend a lot more time teaching the partners this kind of stuff. Mm. But it's such simple techniques. Anybody can do them. It yeah, is yeah. not rocket science in there. Because, again, the work I've done with my osteopath is showing me how each technique, what it does to the various joints and organs. You know, it's just about articulating the body 
and and jostling tissues so so tissues stay healthy and supple and mm. and yet often as the added advantage to gently jiggle the baby so it helps give a chance baby kind of jiggle their head around and be in a better position or mm. jiggle their body around yeah and those techniques you know the the, the the birth techniques through the the way i've learned that they come from the traditional mexican midwifery tradition and um, they were being created by people before obstetrics modern obstetrics and what fascinates me is when i've done those techniques in the local hospital um many many times people say oh my god this is amazing that's such a good idea and I'm like, oh yeah, it's, I'm really glad Molly O'Brien is bringing courses mm. to teach, um, you know, NHS people. But I, I'm like, how did we forget, you know, that before we had surgery, um, people had to find ways of, you know, helping labor. And I also really think that's the other thing. I've had really interesting discussion with people where they say that the ribosome is an intervention. And I said, yeah, I agree. Because, you know, there's two of us who believe that their role is not to do intervention. Yeah. And I personally um, I agree that it's an infant intervention and it's the lesser of two evils. You know, if you could yeah. somebody's told you if you haven't had a baby within the hour, we'll take you to theater for a cesarean. Would you rather do this or that? You know, it's worth yeah. a shot. Um, but you know, I also believe that most of the time I have to suggest those techniques. They wouldn't be needed if people were more patient. But that given the context of maternity care we're in, and because people are going to like, you know, I'm tapping my breast to signify, you know, mm -hmm. tapping their watch, saying, if you, you know, you have X amount of time between being fully dilated and pushing the baby out, you have, your dilation has to obey this kind of really strict, rigid guideline. That's the world we live in. So, yeah. you know, helping and also sometimes it's simply beside that, you know, the mother is getting exhausted and um, and people struggle with sensation of labor. And mm -hmm. I have used shaking the apples, for instance, um, at, uh, you know, when the early bit of labor where you know it's not time to go to hospital yet, but where people are like finding challenging to, mm -hmm. to manage the sensation, often jiggling the body will really help. Like I've, I remember a, home, a VBAC, where the mother said, I want to go to the hospital, I want an epidural. And I said, okay, for the next three contraction, we're going to try this. And then she never wanted an epidural after that. Mm. You know, so it's, you know, in my experience, some people, it's very rare, there's a small proportion of people who don't like the jiggling. Mm. Uh, but in my experience, most people find it intensely comforting. Yeah, and it yeah. has the added bonus too. Basically, there's no, there's no like, almost no disadvantages. There's very, very few counterindications as long as it's done gently. And the, the, the bottom line of all these techniques is always be guided by the person you, yeah. you know, do they want to do it when you do it? Let them guide you. So people often ask me, how, how fast and which, which amplitude do you rock? And I'm like, there's no like, you can't tell people you rock at this speed or you rock at this amplitude because it's like the person knows what's right for them. So you go and rock gently or maybe you rock a little bit faster and then tell them what do they prefer and they'll tell you and then that's what you do. Yeah. So it's it's deceptively simple. Every time I teach it, I, I watch how people, you know, I teach, a, I've taught a lot of midwives and doulas. And even when people are not pregnant, they're like, oh my God, this feels so good. You know, they really enjoy it. And I'm like, it's, yeah, it just looks like you're doing nothing. You're just holding somebody with a piece of fabric and just gently jiggling their hips or yeah. their shoulders or their belly. Or, and, and everybody's saying, oh my God, it's so relaxing. Yeah. yeah. Everyone that I've, all of my clients that I've done, they're shaking the apple trees on. Yeah. I've always re really really loved it they say, yeah. they say it just feels really nice it feels really it does it, feels it really does nice. even when you're not pregnant yeah. yeah yeah they say it's such I think it's such I think it's so, I think it's fascinating I think it's fascinating that it's I think people or doulas who practice some of these techniques can be seen as a bit alternative mm. and a bit holistic and a bit hippie and but it's all essential knowledge that we've just forgotten. We've and forgotten. It's, it's, there's nothing woo about the usage of no. It's biomechanics. 
it's you know again I'm very grateful to the osteopath who the osteopath who told me all about what it does because it makes so much sense when you start looking at it that way you know there's um when you do more vibrating technique you're more working into like fluid tissues like fascia mm-hmm. and soft tissues like muscles and you know in and when you're working with a sort of more like um slower rhythm at more amplitude you're articulating you know bones like um and it's there's a lot of health into creating movement into the body you know um the only time when we don't move is when we're dead <laughs> so sort of <laughs> they just it's as much i always say to people yes it has this aura of hippiness and alternative to it but there's nothing this is not energy healing we're talking about you know i i love that too by the way i yeah. was well into that but this is just biomechanics physiology it, it, yeah. i find it fascinating because i i've done molly's course yeah the 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 the, the basics course <clears throat> which blew my mind mm. learning about the biomechanics and you know the, how to relieve a lot of the positional issues that babies may have because yeah. of misaligned pelvises and things yeah um and a lot of my family are um bowen therapists oh lovely yeah um which if anyone doesn't know what bowen therapy is it's it's again another kind of alternative therapy manipulating the fascial layer in the body um and uh, my friend um matt the male doula is also a bowen um technique and did did you know that matt has um he trained with me in closing the bone oh did he he created his own blend of and together is it, it goes then, together doesn't it and then it last year he came and massaged me and i thought that i was really interesting because at some stage i was like is this really state and i was like oh that's my technique oh that's my technique <laughs> <laughs> i mean i shouldn't call it my technique because it's not mine but you know like I, you recognize things yeah. yeah i went to have a womb massage last week with someone and i was like oh yeah that's similar to what i do oh that's different oh yeah you know yeah, Matt's fantastic. He's he is a... fantastic. But I just find it interesting how there's so many similarities and everything is all, you know, the 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 theory and the the physiology and, and it's all it's all related, it's all interlinked. Yep. Um and most pregnant people, when they prepare for birth, they they not that they ignore it, they're just not even aware of all of this stuff. You know, oh. when they when a lot of people do antenatal prep they all they'll do they, like they go to like a I don't know like an antenatal class and they'll learn about their birth preferences yeah. and they'll learn about you know maybe what induction is and yeah. you know, cesarean options and they'll but they they miss out this huge chunk of really important antenatal education which frankly is going to potentially minimize the need for a lot of those yeah. interventions because you are optimizing your baby's position your learning techniques can that can relieve dystocia you're, yeah. you're helping balance everything which can potentially give you a, a quicker labor yeah. um, and I just think it's heartbreaking that people don't realize that this stuff is actually it's, it's scientific and it's, it's I know. Really important information isn't it I know yeah. and it's easy and nice to do as well you know yeah yeah so, but again, you know, the, it's so not within the mainstream of medical care, no, you know, no. the, the understanding of, um, well, that everything is linked and the understanding that you can release, you know, like it, it never ceases to fascinate, fascinate me how little, um, how little training there is within the Western medical model of mm-hmm. care about normal body function about it's almost like we've got a medical system of disease rather than a medical system of health yeah you know and and it's really interesting through the years i've been the ears of a lot of medical and midwife friends when my kids were small and we were going to primary school there were some midwives and doctors at the, and in school program i would bend their ear about stuff and the people would often look at me like i had two heads you know like to to say for instance that you you can um rebalance those ligaments so that the baby whose bridge can turn by just having a pelvic adjustment with an osteopath or a chiropractor or that an osteopath or a chiropractor can release adhesions to that from a previous cesarean scar which makes a lot of sense to do before you give birth again mm-hmm. and people also said to me i don't believe that's possible and i was like 
there's nothing to be believed. It's like it's science. <laughs> it's like, but it's a different type of science. Um, mm. Yeah, I've seen so many cases of um, even postpartum. You know, the, to to have clients have supported in the hospital having um, problems with um, prolapse, incontinence, all sorts of things after the birth, and then the, the, the hospital has really nothing to offer, and then they go to see um, either pelvic health physio and a osteopath or a chiropractor, and then things get better within one session. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, you know, if we want to go into a more sort of um, out of the birth topic, you know, I suffered from excruciating period pain for most of my life. Mm -hmm. And then I met my osteopath and he said to me, I can help. And I said, how? And he said, oh, let me have a feel. And he said, your round ligaments, which are the ligaments that attach to uterus to the front of pelvis, are too tight and, and let me release them. And that wasn't very comfortable. But then within two, two cycles, I was period pain free. I mean, mm -hmm. I had to have period pain so severe, I vomited. Yeah. And um, I've got a blog about that. It's full of stories from other people in there now. But after he, the pain went away, I said, I don't understand because I thought the... The pain was caused by prostaglandins, and I don't understand why releasing ligaments would remove the prostaglandin. And he said, it's not that you don't have cramps anymore. It's that they're, they're still there, but they don't hurt anymore. Mm -hmm. Because when your ligaments are too tight, your uterus is completely folded forward. So it has to cramp really hard to get the blood out. And I like, you know, my, got my complete brain blown by that. And, and after that, I felt on a mission. That's why I wrote the blog about it. Because I hear constantly people say, oh, well, it's normal to have your pain and, uh, and there's nothing you can do about it and you should take painkillers. And I'm like, it's exactly the same approach. You know, it's, it's, that's just the same approach for everything when it comes yeah. to women's health, isn't yeah. it? And pain, you just have to just deal with it, pop some yeah. pills and deal with and it. And now, now that I've got, you know, I got a puppy about um, two months ago. And I, I had to take the puppy to the vet. Um, and uh, so I came home and I told my husband, it's the same, it's just antibiotics and painkillers. <laughs> Whereas I started saying to the vet, so doesn't it seem weird to you that there's only one strain of probiotics in that probiotic? Surely there should be a, and they looked at me like I had two heads. <laughs> and, and, and in fact, this um, vet said, was very nice vet said to me, oh, I don't know about that. I've not read about it. And again, I went away saying to my husband, why do they not curious? Why are they not curious? Like, but you can apply that to obstetrics. Can't yeah, you? everything. Yeah, everything. It just, it's, that's just, it's how we do it. And they don't, they don't question it. And, and then when you, and then when you, when you speak to student midwives, you know, you have some who are really have a thirst for knowledge and they question things and that's fantastic. And that's, that's the future that you want. But then you also have some who are being taught a certain way and don't question it. <clears throat> and I tell you the, the, do you, do you ever listen to um, Dr. Rachel Reed's podcast? Yes. The Midwife's yes. Cauldron. Mm -hmm. There was an episode, I can't remember which one it was. But I remember driving around listening to that. And I just, like, almost had to stop the car because of what she said felt so mind-blowingly true. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes somebody's put some words or something you've experienced and you not quite realize you were experiencing that until mm -hmm. somebody tells you about it. What she said was um, there are three types of midwives, the ones who abide by the rule because they agree with them. And she said they're probably the majority. Mm -hmm. The ones who don't abide by the rules but disagree with them covertly. So that's the kind of thing I thought, yeah, I've been at birth where at home the baby, you know, pushing lasted three hours. And afterwards I said to the midwife, how do you do, do that? How do you like, I know your guideline says two hours, so how do you like? Mm. And the midwife said, I don't record pushing until I can see the head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and yeah. the third category is the midwives that overtly disrespect the rules mm -hmm. and they get removed. Yeah. And, you know, it took me years to understand because of my intense personal curiosity that people inside, exactly as you say, most, most people in the maternity field, and I guess in medicine as a whole and in education as a whole and many other fields, they just do the, what they're told. So yeah. they don't go and read the science behind the guideline. They don't question the guidelines. And it doesn't even enter their mind because actually that's how the system is built. People, mm -hmm. it's like a medieval church. People are expected to do as they're told. 
And, and once I understood that, that was quite a few years ago, it took like a big, big rent. Mm. We send as a birth worker and say, I don't understand. I went away from a meeting with a consultant where the usual products have been given, you know, your placenta is failing, your baby might die, blah, 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 you know. And I thought, after I understood that, I sort of started to realize, yeah, it's, we're not the same, you know, they don't, it's like fish can't see water, you yeah. know, they, they're so... That's how the world of maternity care function guidelines get issued by NICE and then each hospital makes their guideline and inside mm -hmm. the system, people are expected to follow like if they're the law, but yeah. also the system really, really punishes people yeah. who don't follow guidelines, especially when something goes wrong. Mm -hmm. And in fact, when something goes wrong, people will be hunted to find if they did follow the guidelines, mm -hmm. which then leads to midwives who are more interested in typing notes than supporting the the, the, the people in the room mm -hmm. that are giving birth mm. and it, I find it heartbreaking because um, I've been discussing that at length with I have a very good friend who was my midwife and I had my second child she, she worked at an independent midwife and she's semi-retired now and we keep you know putting the birth word to right and, and she said uh, she had to leave because she couldn't operate within the system anymore because she was it was breaking her heart mm. and um and now that, you know, you can it, almost no independent midwives. I mean, the only, it's illegal to practice without. Um, back then, I had my friend as a midwife without insurance because back then it, it was actually illegal. Mm -hmm. But also, I didn't give a fuck that she had no insurance because how is that insurance going to make that person a good practitioner or not yeah. a good practitioner? Mm -hmm. And now it's, it's, the system really shrinks down the realm, yeah. making sure that people do as they're told. Mm -hmm. The staff and the people who are basically being churned through, the people giving birth who are being churned through the system. Yeah. Mm. But that's <clears throat> that's why I think people like you and like all the other wonderful birth workers that I that I know on, on online, <clears throat> being vocal, I think is really important because yeah. it's not, it, we were discussing this earlier before we started recording, it's not about telling people not to do something or to go against the grain or to yeah. to to you know be really contrary and say you know I'm not going to take your advice it's about questioning it and yeah. I think we have been conditioned to blindly follow advice and not question it and actually some of some of the the posts that I put on my Instagram that have the most engagement and the most comments are ones where I debunk guidelines Yep. And I say it's not based on evidence. And the amount of pushback I get on my post when I say something is not evidence-based and I get lots of healthcare workers, they get very offended and they get very... Oh, yeah, yeah. But, I'm, but I'm not lying. <laughs> it's I know. the truth. I mean, if you look at the history of medicine, it's really fascinating because um, it goes, you know, the, the kind of story I think about is whistleblowers, uh, the system, find it easier to... Um, and I should probably go back to Rebozo in a minute, but the system <laughs> finds it easier to get rid of the whistleblower mm -hmm. than to deal with what the whistleblower is talking about. So the story that springs to mind is Ignaz Semmelweis, who's as, um, I can't remember if he was Swiss or Austrian, but he was a doctor who, he was the one who said that it was basically not washing their hand that caused Schalbach's fever. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, they put him in an institution. Mm -hmm. And then eventually it was found that he was right. Mm -hmm. But the idea that, that what the, the story around this, this, and there's lots of other stories, by the way, mm -hmm. in the maternity care field, you know, like they used to x-ray, <laughs> they used to do x-ray to everybody during pregnancy. Um, and then it was found to cause childhood leukemia. But again, that took, you know, these kind of stories, it's what you're talking about, you know, the, the people questioning the fact that you're saying those guidelines are not evidence-based because people cannot take the idea for, for one, one second that they may be causing harm. Yeah. So rather than, than going, oh, yeah, yeah, this guideline, is it really true? You know, does it read? They go, oh, no, that's true. This is important with saving lives, you know, with all that kind of stuff. And, you know, maternity care, as you know, is the least evidence-based field of medicine. The, yeah. Riddled with, the, I, mean, there's so, I mean, there's so many things in maternity care that aren't evidence-based or <clears throat> have never been researched or checked for safety. 
I mean, the biggest yeah. one that blew my mind was ultrasound scans. Yeah. The fact that we've never ever researched or checked yeah. if it could be damaging. And there's when lots something of becomes practice, people stop questioning whether it's safe or not. Yeah. You know, you look at CTG monitoring. So when I, I've been in the birth field since 2008, that's when I started training as an NCT teacher and a doula. And back then, I remember researching because, you know, I, I, I'm a nerd, so let's let's be honest, I read a lot around the topic. And um, and I remember finding that in the 1990s, um, when they reviewed the CTG evidence, they found that all it did was increase the risk of cesarean. And here we are in 2020, having the same thing. Prevent the thing that it's supposed to prevent. No, and people are so. In 1990, when the research was done in the 1990s, people, people' response to the lack of effectiveness of CCG machine was, "We need better machines," rather than questioning the actual use of the machine. And that's where we're at. You know, we live in a techno-loving, technology-loving culture. Yeah. Where it's, people just, I mean, it, today, you know, the evidence is really clear that it, it doesn't save lives mm. using um, fetal monitoring continuously. And even in cases of high risk, high risk with quotation mark, yeah. quick pregnancies, and, and yet people are convinced it's just still, you know, very, very, very important to use it. And yeah. Yeah. It, it's really interesting because of the, the similarity to religious beliefs, you know, when mm. you present solid evidence that said actually, you know, it's not true. I mean, and people still can't take it. And then usually it takes 10 to 15 years for science to catch up. But here, you know, there's this been like around for like 20 years of evidence showing it's not doing what it says on the team and then people just carry on. Yeah, it's like <clears throat> it's like the story was well, not a story, it's a fact. Um, the fact that they used to believe that babies couldn't feel pain, mm. so they used to they used to do all sorts of procedures on yeah. babies, sedate them so they can't move, and give them no pain relief and anesthesia, and do all, all sorts of surgeries and proceed painful procedures on babies. Yeah. And 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 I remember when my daughter was born. This is ten years ago, um, and they were trying to do the heel prick to get blood out of her foot, and they couldn't get blood, and that she was screaming and. Yeah. They kept on stabbing her foot and I said, can you stop because you're hurting her? And the midwife said to me, said to me, it's fine. She can't feel anything. She's only a baby. She can't feel it. it. Really obvious. Of course she can feel it. She was screaming. You know, recently I was at a bus where the baby was born in theatre. And you know what happens when the baby's born in theatre? They take the baby to this trolley to give the baby a check of her and usually put the baby on his back like a stranded bit or... And that baby was screaming mm -hmm. and this, I don't know what their title was, but there was a staff member who laughed and said, oh, he's really cross. And, and I remember that's why I wrote this. I don't know if you've seen this spoken word stuff I wrote mm -hmm. recently, but I was like, if an adult was distressed back with babies, people would not make fun of them. Yeah. And they would comfort them. And uh, it took me half an hour to calm this baby down. Because, mm. you know, what a nice welcome in the world to be separated from you, the, the, the person you spend nine months in mm -hmm. and, and basically being in a cool room, completely exposed. Because, again, that's one thing, you know, to weigh a baby, if you put them in either on their side or on their front, you know, in a position where they're not like, like completely exposed. Um, yeah, just. There's a lack of um, humanity that's mm -hmm. really quite shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I could rant for ages. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I want to talk about postpartum because we've yes. talked about people um, in the postpartum. <laughs> so, you know, the same kind of stuff um, that I talked about in pregnancy, you can do rocking and wrapping because it's very comforting and soothing. Mm -hmm. um, but the binding, so, so closing the bone, the, the, the traditional um, massage and closing ritual that I learned, which again, I found evidence of all around the world, like the most recent I found was in, one in Russia, which I found mm -hmm. really interesting because I trained two Russian doula and I checked with them and they said, yeah, yeah, not only does it exist, but we're actually busy training into it ourselves. It says an understanding that after birth, the body is 
open on three levels, open physically, like literally, you know, the pelvis is open, the ribs are flared, the mm-hmm. belly is like loose and floppy, you know, everything is open. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's open uh, energetically and it's also open like sort of emotionally. Mm-hmm. And so having processes to help the body heal faster, but also to close. And, you know, there's two things that happens worldwide, which is uh, some kind of binding practice and also keeping keeping warm with warm food and warm clothes. And, you know, I mean, I, you, you you yourself are from Chinese heritage. You know, my husband's from Hong Kong. There's a, in the traditional Chinese postpartum, there's a real obsession around yep. keeping that, you know, not drinking any cold drinks. Mm-hmm not wearing woolly hats even if it's oh, that yeah. <laughs> yeah, not washing hair and stuff mm-hmm. so forth so it's worldwide that practice and it makes a lot of sense when you think about it um to help speed up the healing mm-hmm. and in fact when in the many traditional cultures including the chinese one there is this idea that if you do the postpartum well you will benefit from better health for mm-hmm. years to come Mm-hmm. It's not just the immediate postpartum healing, but because I've done this using the bone massage and again, very closely with the osteopath and, and I've had the very lucky situation to be treating women who would then be seeing the osteopath as well. So I remember last year when I sometimes I've massaged um, clients 24 hours post birth because mm-hmm. again, this really interesting thing is so. Uh, is, so the, the massage I do, again, different cultures do it differently, but the one I do I involve rocking with rebozo scarves and then the massage of the pelvis, abdomen and chest and then wrapping. Mm-hmm. So the wrapping is really, um, the rocking articulates the massage, moves fluids and tissues and help every, the organs go back into place and help the organ, the uterus shrink back faster and help with milk, you know, production, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. It helps with well-being as well, but the closing, wrapping and closing really helps with the, getting the contours of your body back to yourself again. And then on some physical level, it helps because I found a French midwife who did a, a thesis on binding in the postpartum in the hospital, which was fascinating. I stalked her until I got hold of her thesis because yeah. I wanted to include it in my book. Sorry, I, I've not mentioned that, but I wrote a book called Why Postnatal Recovery Matters. Mm-hmm. And um, and basically, the, 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 it, it makes so much sense when you think that the changes that happen during pregnancy where the uterus becomes from the size of a pear to the size of a watermelon and back again, the fact that the ribs become bigger, the pelvis tip, the spine change shape, and all that has to happen in reverse after the birth. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely ludicrous that we don't have as standard some kind of physical check. So what to help things, you know, heal because it's such a big change and all the traditional in the world know that, but we've lost it. So what we've got in the UK, which I found utterly fascinating is we have this thing where you have no check because when you go and have your six weeks check, you don't get checked, right? No, you have no, a chat no, with no. the doctor. Yeah, you yeah. don't get examined unless you have a particular problem. They might have a look as your as to stitches or mm-hmm. stitches or something. But you get told you should not have any treatment until you've had your six weeks check, which is not actually a check. That's mind blowing to me That's because I did some I did some research. I have lots of friends who are massage therapists in the UK, and I said. So where does that come from, this six weeks? Don't touch anybody before six weeks. Turns out from discussing it with people, it sounds like it's an insurance thing. Mm. What people take as granted, here's another you know, story the same way as what we were talking about in maternity care. When people take things for granted, so everybody says you must not have a massage until you're six weeks postpartum. But the six weeks, the first six weeks, that's when you should have it the most because that's when the body is plastic and resetting itself. And that's when it's the most needed, you know, to help the body heal. So I've had the chance to massage women who then went to see my osteopath and he himself has had lots of experience of closing people's diastasis recti and mm-hmm. doing all sorts of things with the technique we've, we've ended, up, ended up creating together. But last year I had a client who massaged four times during the first two weeks postpartum then she went off to see the osteopath and he said you're in amazing shape for somebody who just gave birth and she said i have had four closing the bone and he said oh, well that's why <laughs> <laughs> it's just gentle movement and do you see what i mean it's like yeah. 
if you have tissues move, if you have like keeping things mobile and also the wrapping can help soft support, you know, um, stretch tissues and, and help close the pelvis and it just makes people feel contained. You know, it's really interesting because on an emotional level, it feels really good as well. Yeah. So I've taken it to wrapping myself quite a lot because of having spent a long time telling people how good it is. I ended up experimenting a lot with it. And I, I found that whenever I show people how to wrap their hips, regardless of their age, gender, um, whether they've had children or not, you know, people will go, oh my God, this feels amazing. They don't want to take it off. Mm. And um, I have friends who are from uh, indigenous South America. And my friend Laura was from Colombia says, you get given this belt when you reach puberty and you use it to wrap your, your pelvis and keep your, your womb warm and all that kind of things. And I was starting to research this and finding like the Japanese version and this and that and the other. And, and I told my mom about this thing because I, I have cold fingers and feet in the winter. So I found if I wear um, what's like a boob tube for your belly, you know, made of wool in the winter, it, mm -hmm. it helps to keep your extremities warmer. Mm -hmm especially as I do year-round winter swimming in, in the river now. Mm -hmm. And my mom said to me, well, when, you, when I was a kid in Brittany where I grew up, she said farmers knew that and they always wore something to keep their kidneys warm. And I was like, wow, you know, mind blown again. Yeah. So how did we lose? Because again, people think it's an old, you know, we were talking about <clears throat> people thinking it's alternative. People say, oh, you don't need that. It's an old fashioned woo thing. Um, and what's really interesting is um, I have had a chance to massage um, new mothers who were from cultures where they still have that tradition, but where their mom was saying to them, so for instance, a woman in my village was from Morocco and was delighted to find me because her mom said, you need to have the thing. And but she said, well, I can't find somebody who does that here. So there she was in Cambridge, find a French woman <laughs> who does a traditional massage and I've also last year went to um, massage a, a new mother from India um, who didn't speak English as the husband who booked it it was a really interesting thing and afterwards it was broken English she said to me now I understand why all my family was banging on about me getting this treatment because after new, newer generation they were saying, ah, yeah, it's an old-fashioned yeah. thing. My mother or my grandmother is telling me about, mm. I don't need that. And then once they've had it, they're like, yeah. I, I. And again, traditional culture would do this massage more than once. Mm. You know, it wasn't like you get it once and that's it, you're done. You know, when, when I went to Hong Kong about three or four years ago and I tried to get to experience the traditional Jammu massage they have with binding that they, it seems to be available in Hong Kong. I couldn't get one because my brother-in-law made quite a few calls and he said, you can either book five, 10, 15 or 20. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have just one <laughs> packages, you know, and it was costing quite a bit of money. So I didn't. Yes, I think I, when, I, when I read um, Dr. Rachel Reed's book, yeah. um, which covered some of the, the history of childbirth, yeah. <clears throat> I think that's eye-opening finding out mm -hmm. how we ended up in this modern obstetrics led version of birth. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, it's like going into a whole nother topic now, but like yeah. you know, understanding the, the, you know, the witch hunts and yeah. the church and the patriarchy and all of that has all had a hand to play in us losing all of that knowledge and forgetting the importance. And we have the same model of the postpartum and pregnancy, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, with no understanding of the body's needs and nurturing. And it's not factored into maternity care or health Not at all. We're, but we're, again, the really interesting thing is- like Waved off. <laughs> I'm friends with quite a few um, older midwives who have told me that in, in the 1980s, there used to be a lot more. Yeah. You know, the, in the 1980s in London, they used to do twice a day visits in the postpartum. Mm. And there used to be a lot more rest. And again, encouraging people to rest Mm. in the postpartum but you know it, it, they really it really still blows my mind how little support there is you know the only country in the world that I know has a standard sort of re-education of the Pyrenees France mm. 
And even there, they only look at the perineum. So when I've talked to French doulas and birth workers, they've said to me, it's done in a very, you know, that thing where we, we take the body as different parts that mm-hmm. are independent from each other. Mm-hmm. I, I learned um, through the COVID, actually, I did it online, a technique called hypopressive. I don't know if you've ever heard about that. It's, no. And uh, it's a technique where you expire and then you kind of pretend you're doing your breath. So it really sucks your tummy in. Mm-hmm. And the, the doula who told me that, she said she had a separation of the abdominal muscle, quite severe, diastasis recti. For years after her birth, and she was told the only way to repair it would be to have surgery. Mm-hmm. And she did learn this technique and repaired it within a couple of months. And I myself went to teach class in the bottle in London last year and over a two-day course I was doing, and this woman came and had four years post-birth, so quite a big gap, like maybe two centimeters gap between her abdominal muscle. And I could see it as she was lying on the ground. I said, lift your head, and I could see this gap. And she said, yes, I know I've got diastasis. And, you know, the next day she didn't have one. Wow. And then I asked my stepmother to explain me that. <clears throat> Explain me how can somebody have their gap disappear over just a bit of massage practice. He said, because people think that they confuse strengths with short and tight muscles. And he said, what you want is muscles that are long and strong. So he spent a lot of time showing me Instagram pictures of, you know, the difference between men who have age. Like he was showing me pictures of men who are so bulky that they almost folded forward. So he mm-hmm. said, somebody like that wouldn't be able to put a suitcase in there of a head looker. But he said, long and strong is what is healthy. And so when you when you do the massage um, that involve like gently jiggling the abdomen muscle towards the midline, then the tight and short and muscle can relax and then they can come back together. Mm. I, if I hadn't seen it for myself, I would think that's not true. Even if I've seen it many, many times, mm. I still struggle to believe that somebody who's given birth four years ago can have such a drastic change in their yeah. body appearance over the course of just... I mean, my osteopathic is reduced the biostasis recti by half in 10 minutes of massage. Wow. He is, his is very targeted compared because he has such a phenomenal palpation skill. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm like, well, you know, even, and, he's, and I said, and, it's, and it stays that way. He said, yes, yeah. it doesn't reopen. Yeah. So we know this stuff, don't we? <laughs> I know, I know. And again, the binding and all these kind of things that the, the reason I love the binding is because people can do it themselves. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be costly mm-hmm. because again, the, the Another aspect of why I'm so passionate about postpartum nurture, the body work, you know, in, in my book, I talk about postpartum healing being in, in four categories of enough social support, enough rest, enough food, and enough body work. And I've discovered since I've published the book that the body work really is the most neglected aspect of the four. Mm. It's inexistent in our culture, you know. Nobody books a postpartum massage. It's seen as a a luxury that you don't need is all the money should go towards the baby <clears throat> and the more I look into that the more I'm like wow it's really not right that mm-hmm. so again um, in in COVID because they were even less access to you know the, in 2020 and the first half of 2021 less access to to support and services I supported cases of really dire pain and really dire problems and things that you know really shouldn't happen Mm -hmm. and I did some research um, and I found that I think one in three women at post-birth end up with um, urinary incontinence and um, I think it's I can't remember there was a fairly high percentage of people who still had separation of the diastasis recti. It's basically one list after the other of big problems that shouldn't happen if they were detected early. And so when I did spinning babies, I remember the trainer said it takes eight to 10 years on average for people to seek help for things like um, urinary incontinence, Mm, post-birth. Yeah. 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 You just, yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking. But if men gave birth, it would be some kind of Cambridge professor of the postpartum. 
That's very true. That's very, very, very true. But oh, don't get me started. I'll start ranting. No, no, I know. <laughs> but it's it's the more I delve into this, the more I activated I get because I'm like, how did we get to a place where yeah, you're basically all all that we're looking at is is the baby alive and the, mm -hmm. the you know and, and that's it you know the yeah. Yeah, and, and people suffer and they shouldn't have to. Yeah. So if if anybody wants to learn yeah. the Rose techniques that we've covered today, yeah. you said that you run courses, where can where can they find you online? So on my website, I've I've got an online course version of the, the technique on my website, sophiemessager.com. And then I've got another website called closingthebonemassage.com. I mean, if you want to learn Rebozo, you know, from time to time, I've got an online course for Rebozo for pregnancy birth, mm -hmm. and I've got a, an online course for the closing the bone. Mm -hmm. And from time to time, I do live courses. And the, there's a website called closingthebonemassage.com, which is about the closing the bone. But basically, generally on my website, I put live courses. At the moment, I'm not doing any because I'm on paternity leave, but. <laughs> later, later during the year i shall be resuming doing live teaching i'll make sure i'll i'll make sure i put your website in the um the Thank podcast you. and um, i've got you know obviously an, an, an instagram yeah. channel as well and whenever i plan to teach or something i usually share that on there as well the best way people often ask message me saying when are you teaching next i always say the best way to be kept in the loop is to register for my newsletters because I can't keep up with, you know, like I can't, if people say to me, let me know when you're, I can't keep track of that. It's just yeah. too many people contacting me for that, for me to be able to remember and message everyone. Yeah. Mm. Thank you so much for today. I really appreciate Thank it. You. I feel like I could just keep on talking to you for like an hour. I know, I know. I'm just yeah, <laughs> conscious of the time. Yeah, we keep, to, keep, keep putting the birth word to right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but th thank you, and I'll make sure that I I, I make sure that I signpost everybody to you because um, thank you. I already send all my clients to you if they want to buy uh, rebozos and things mm. and want to learn more about rebozos. So um, I appreciate you giving me your time today. I very much appreciate that you invited me to talk to you today. Oh, I thank you, Sophie. Yeah. <laughs> The Better Birth podcast and all of its content is for educational and informational purposes only. You should consult your midwife or your doctor for anything in relation to your own pregnancy and birth. The opinions and the views of the guests on the Better Birth podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Better Birth or Erin Fung. <laughs>